Hi, this is Ideas on Craft, a podcast about ideas on growth, progress, and prosperity. Welcome to Ideas on Craft, and today I am on with Mr. Femi Edu. Femi Edu is the former managing director of Frontier Capital Limited. You're welcome. Thanks very much, Toby. One thing I first want to discuss with you is public-private partnerships in the finance of big infrastructure projects like monumental projects or special economic zones or ports. What really are the barriers to making them work? And why haven't we seen some kind of explosion in its impact in Nigeria? Perhaps I should start by telling a story. Last August, I was in Togo meeting with the top executives of one of the largest fashion brand companies in the world. And they're considering setting up multi-site manufacturing operations in West Africa to support Mm. their global business. And they said, you know, we just want to get comfortable with all the countries that we're planning to locate in. They were in Togo at the invitation of the Togolese president, who had met with them in London as well as in China. And he said, you know, doing large projects or making large investments in a country is like getting married. Mm-hmm. So first there has to be the courtship. And these days, smart countries are the ones that go out courting investors. And then we get comfortable. And when we get comfortable, then we get married because we're going to be doing business together for a long time. And a major investment, whether by a domestic investor or a foreign investor, it doesn't really matter. A major investment like that is, in a sense, like a marriage. So why are we not getting married in that space? And it's a number of things. I think we need to be a bit more deliberate and systematic in our messaging and in the signals that we send out to investors. So on the one hand, we're telling investors that they're welcome and their investments will be protected. On the other hand, they are seeing examples of activity that may suggest that that is not exactly the case. And um, certainly as far as what investors are concerned, one of the things that investors will tell you is that they want to see how a country has treated its local investors in the process of making the choice about whether to invest them. Then beyond all that, in making the investments, is there a smooth, seamless process bringing these investments? What are the rules? Are they well known up front? How much work has the government of Nigeria done as the public sector side demonstrate its readiness? With all of these projects, usually there is a significant amount of project preparation that has to be done in order to demonstrate, at least in an outline and preliminary way, the viability and desirability of these investments. We need to be very clear about the legal and regulatory regime. We need to be clear about how the relationships are likely to be structured. We need to be clear about the extent to which investors will have protection for their funds. These are some of the areas that we need to improve. So we have an infrastructure concession and regulatory commission, the ICRC, that does a great job, led by very good people. The 
CEO there is an ex-shell executive who's got engineering background, worked on large projects. He knows how the world works. And there's some excellent people working within the ICRC. But beyond navigating ICRC, there's the whole question of how you just deal with the octopus that Nigeria can be. Lots of regulations, there's lots of, you know, government agencies and entities that have some form of oversight or some form of regulatory role to play in these projects. And we've just got to be able to do a better job of bringing all those things together in one place. And it goes beyond, you know, lining up 26 agencies in a hall and saying that it's a one-stop shop. It really goes beyond that. We really need to be a lot more joined up in the public sector in terms of how we approach the private markets for capital for these projects. Is it a failure of communication? Because interesting to mention, you, you can have the Ministry of Trade and Investment that is trying to bring investment into the country, cutting investors and all that. And you can also have an example of a regulatory agency that is more or less standing in the way of growth for a fledgling sector or industry. So what could better improve this synergy in communication to present a common agenda on the investment front? Again, I'm a great believer in the power of stories. Let's go back to two examples. Nigeria is a country of interesting paradoxes because one of the most successful PPP entities in the world is in Nigeria. Nigeria LNG is one of the best examples that you can find globally in the area of public-private partnerships. That's something that was constructed very, very carefully to create alignment between Nigeria and the international oil companies, the IOCs, in the process of trying to exploit uh, gas resources. Now, if you remember the history of Nigeria LNG, it took a while. It took a number of years for it to actually come out of the ground and become operational. But I think one of the key messages there is that there was a very careful and deliberate process of creating alignment between the public and the private sectors. The public sector being government of Nigeria, the NMPC, the oil industry, at least the publicly owned oil industry in Nigeria and the IOCs who brought in management and capital for these projects. So we brought our gas, and for that we got equity. The IOCs brought cash, the know-how, the management expertise to run these multiple projects over several streams that represent the company to create what is the largest fleet of LNG vessels in the world, to build a company that has paid billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars to government in dividends over the years. So beyond communication, I think the real point is working hard to ensure that there is alignment. You know, that's something that we hear a lot in investing, in private equity, in principal investing, in any type of investing where partners are involved. It's critical for you to have alignment between the partners. And that's why the analogy of marriage is such a, a powerful one when you're thinking about PPP projects in Nigeria. So yes, just as you need communication to make good marriages work, you need communication to make good PPP projects work. And that communication is even more critical 
early on whilst you're trying to find the partners and whilst you're trying to create alignment. Mm. It's not exactly a PPP project, but the process by which we conducted the auctions for the GSM licenses that brought you know, private companies coming in to take spectrum from government in what was acknowledged as an open, fair, transparent, very professionally managed process is certainly one of the high points in the history of Nigeria in terms of attracting foreign direct investment. And if we just apply those lessons on a consistent basis to the things that we do, take time to be very clear about our objectives, take time to make sure that we communicate those objectives very clearly, design a playing field, level it, and make it open, and use, you know, sensible criteria to determine the sorts of partners that you want. One of my old bosses always used to say that one of the things that's important for you to do in life, in building a business and selling a product or service, is to define your target market clearly. Uh-huh. Even going into partnerships like marriages, you've got to be very clear about it. So we were clear that we wanted investment had experience in deploying telecoms networks internationally, had experience in working manufacturers that had experience in rolling out the technology, and also, you know, evidence of the capability to make these things work. And, and that's, that's why we've got the results. So we follow these sorts of processes, and we make sure that they are run properly, openly, by people of integrity, then we'll get the results of them. Mm. So we have great people in the ICRC. They're credible, they have time, just add the benefit, then just get our signal right as a country, get our priorities right as a country, and start singing off the same hymn sheet. So mm. Since we are on the subject, maybe you can help me untangle one puzzle that has personally haunted me for years, and I, I haven't been able to get a good answer. What went wrong with Tinapa? I mean, this was a project that had so much promise, there was so much investment, and of course we've gotten a multitude of answers. Some will say, oh, it was because government didn't build the port, or Calabar did not have the natural advantages, blah, blah, blah. In your opinion, what went wrong with that project? And would you say we have learned the lessons from some of our failures? Hmm. Okay. Well, um, you're, you're right when you say that, uh, you know, depending on who you talk to, many answers as questions to the question of what happened to Tinapa. My view, the perspective of an interested bystander in the sense that I was somewhat involved in the credit rating process of the project financing that went into that. And I certainly was involved from just my interest in governance and um, political economy. But my view is that, like most other project finances, when a project has lots of externalities, in this case, things like the regime, modernization of the ports, improvement of air infrastructure going into Calabar were outside the control of the sponsors, Cross River State and their investment company. When we have those sorts of things, you know, uh, and those who were involved were not 
tidy up for the financing themselves, they declare obligation in order to make the project go forward. Inapa was a great project, an interesting location, but if they had put it perhaps closer to the existing infrastructure in Lagos, even as poor as it is and as stretched as it is currently, maybe they'd have had a better chance of success. But you see, I think one of the issues there is that we, we've got to realize that it's important for a country of this size for us to, if you like, democratize the development of the infrastructure. We've rolled it out so that we reduce the pressure on Lagos. But Tinapa was a few years ahead of its time, and it was also a victim of externalities that were outside of the world. Would you say we have learned the lesson from that experience? Well, I think the way to answer that question is to say that, you know, when, when a project sponsor is a public sector entity or a subnational government, to the extent that it doesn't try a repeat project like the one that failed, it learns the lesson, right? But when we see similar projects coming to market and getting broad support across the board, no, we haven't learned the lesson. Uh, mm. One of the paradoxes of the financial market, especially the banking credit markets, which goes through cycles, seven to ten year cycles, you know, everybody that was involved in the last banking downturn, the last growth of non-performing loans, either retired or they lost their jobs, and the institutional memory, you know, sort of just stays on the shelving, and we end up making the same mistakes in different ways. But, you know, we forget everything and we learn nothing. That's what the history of the financial markets tells us. That's what the history of the economic cycles tells us. So I don't think that's anybody's fault in particular. It's just that usually what we end up finding is that there is a triumph of hope and optimism over experience. Another passion of mine is special economic zones, which I've actually researched quite extensively. And there are a number of them in Nigeria. As a matter of fact, we've been doing it for years under different uh, ages, whether industrial parks or export processing zones. Again, why haven't we seen the kind of impact for this idea as we saw in the case of places like China and Korea. What's going on? Nigeria was actually an early adopter of the idea of special economic zones, and um, our export processing zone decree was written in the Babangida administration. So this is something that we did in the early 90s. The development of Calabar export processing zone, Calabar free trade zone, which was the first one, which is fully government-owned, I think started in 1993. Kano Free Trade Zone, which is also government-owned, started, I believe, in 1996. So Nigeria was an early adopter of the idea. But when you think about government ownership of special economic zones, whatever name they're called by, we've got to look at the fact that one of the drivers of the success of these things is the quality of infrastructure the ease of doing business and the cost of doing business. So it's supposed to be a magnet for investments by offering world-class infrastructure 
that makes it easy to do business and lowers the cost of doing business. What that means is that government needs to make significant amounts of investment in the hard and soft infrastructure, both inside and outside the fence. Outside the fence in terms of the connecting infrastructure, roads, rail, air, sea or water transportation, water, power, these days, ICT, and so forth. You need to make sure that there is also infrastructure within the fence. You need to make sure that in addition to all the hard infrastructure, there is also the soft infrastructure in terms of the regulatory framework, in terms of the supply of skilled labor, both operational and managerial. So there's a huge amount of investment that needs to be made in hard and soft infrastructure, both inside and outside the fence of these SEZs. And that requires government to come up with substantial amounts of money. Now, when you think about all of the competing demands on the treasury for education, for healthcare, for public infrastructure, for the, you know, the justice system, for the police, for the armed forces, the court system, we would struggle to be able to come up with the amount of investment required to make these projects work, at least to the standards that are required and to the levels that we see when we go around the world. That is something that we cannot run away from. And, you know, government hasn't been very successful in being able to attract private investment into collaborations with the public sector in that space. The best examples that you will see in Nigeria of special economic zones are private ones. The Oner Free Trade Zone in the Port Harcourt area is a great example. That's an Intel's project. The Nador project in, in Lagos is another example. Niger Dock is another example. Even though Niger Dock, you know, the basic infrastructure there was invested in by government in the late 70s and early 80s, and it went through a process of privatization. But the real issue is that government would struggle to come up with the amounts of capital investment required and its patient money that's required to stay there over, you know, 15, 20-year time frames. So I think until we figure out a sustainable way in which to attract private investment in collaboration with government, because there is a very important role that government will play as an enabler, as a regulator, as a facilitator of the operation of these special zones. Until we find that solution, I think we'll continue to struggle. Would you say we have learned the lesson from that experience? Well, I think the way to answer that question is to say that you know, when when a project sponsor is a public sector entity or a subnational government, to the extent that it doesn't try a repeat project like the one that failed, it learns the lesson, right? But when we see similar projects coming to market and getting broad support across the board, no, we haven't learned the lesson. Uh, mm. One of the paradoxes of the financial market. Actually, the banking credit markets, which goes through cycles, seven to ten year cycles, you know, everybody that was involved in the last banking downturn, the last growth of non-performing loans, either retired or they lost their jobs, and the institutional memory, you know, sort of just stays on the shelving 
and we end up making the same mistakes in different ways. But, you know, we forget everything and we learn nothing. That's what the history of the financial markets tells us. That's what the history of the economic cycles tells us. So I don't think that's anybody's fault in particular. It's just that usually what we end up finding is that there is a triumph of hope and optimism by experience. Interesting. Another passion of mine is special economic zones, which I've actually researched quite extensively. And there are a number of them in Nigeria. As a matter of fact, we've been doing it for years under different uh, ages, whether industrial parks or export processing zones. Again, why haven't we seen the kind of impact for this idea as we saw in the case of places like China and Korea. What's going on? Nigeria was actually an early adopter of the idea of special economic zones, and um, our export processing zone decree was written in the Babangida administration. So this is something that we did in the early 90s. The development of Calabar export processing zone, Calabar free trade zone, which was the first one, which is fully government-owned, I think started in 1993. Kano Free Trade Zone, which is also government-owned, started, I believe, in 1996. So Nigeria was an early adopter of the idea. But when you think about government ownership of special economic zones, whatever name they're called by, we've got to look at the fact that one of the drivers of the success of these things is the quality of infrastructure the ease of doing business, and the cost of doing business. So it's supposed to be a magnet for investments by offering world-class infrastructure that makes it easy to do business and lowers the cost of doing business. What that means is that government needs to make significant amounts of investment in the hard and soft infrastructure, both inside and outside the fence. Outside the fence in terms of the connecting infrastructure, roads, rail, air, sea or water transportation, water, power, these days, ICT, and so forth. You need to make sure that there is also infrastructure within the fence. You need to make sure that in addition to all the hard infrastructure, there is also the soft infrastructure in terms of the regulatory framework, in terms of the supply of skilled labor, both operational and managerial, So there's a huge amount of investment that needs to be made in hard and soft infrastructure, both inside and outside the fence of these SEZs, and that requires government to come up with substantial amounts of money. Now, when you think about all of the competing demands on the Treasury for education, for healthcare, for public infrastructure, for the, you know, the justice system, for the police, for the armed forces, the court system. We would struggle to be able to come up with the amount of investment required to make these projects work, at least to the standards that are required and to the levels that we see when we go around the world. That is something that we cannot run away from. And, you know, government hasn't been very successful in being able to attract private investment into collaborations with the public sector in that space. The best examples that you will see in Nigeria of special economic zones are private ones. 
the Onel Free Trade Zone in the Port Harcourt area is a great example. That's an Intel's project. The Nador project in, in Lagos is another example. Niger Dock is another example. Even though Niger Dock, you know, the basic infrastructure there was invested in by government in the late 70s and early 80s, and it went through a process of privatization. But the real issue is that government would struggle to come up with the amounts of capital investment required and its patient money that's required to stay there over, you know, 15, 20-year time frames. So I think until we figure out a sustainable way in which to attract private investment in collaboration with government, because there is a very important role that government will play as an enabler, as a regulator, as a facilitator of the operation of these special zones. Until we find that solution, I think we'll continue to struggle. Would you say we have learned the lesson from that experience? Well, I think the way to answer that question is to say that you know, when when a project sponsor is a public sector entity or a subnational government, to the extent that it doesn't try a repeat project like the one that failed, it learns the lesson, right? But when we see similar projects coming to market and getting broad support across the board, no, we haven't learned the lesson. Uh, mm. One of the paradoxes of the financial market the banking credit market, which goes through cycles, seven to ten year cycles. You know, everybody that was involved in the last banking downturn, the last growth of non-performing loans, either retired or they lost their jobs. And the institutional memory, you know, sort of just stays on the shelving and we end up making the same mistakes in different ways. But, you know, we forget everything and we learn nothing. That's what the history of the financial markets tells us. That's what the history of the economic cycles tells us. So I don't think that's anybody's fault in particular. It's just that usually what we end up finding is that there is a triumph of hope and optimism over experience. Interesting. Another passion of mine is special economic zones, which I've actually researched quite extensively. And there are a number of them in Nigeria. As a matter of fact, we've been doing it for years under different uh, ages, whether industrial parks or export processing zones. Again, why haven't we seen the kind of impact for this idea as we saw in the case of places like China and Korea. What's going on? Nigeria was actually an early adopter of the idea of special economic zones, and um, our export processing zone decree was written in the Babangida administration. So this is something that we did in the early 90s. The development of Calabar export processing zone, Calabar free trade zone, which was the first one, which is fully government-owned, I think started in 1993. Kano Free Trade Zone, which is also government-owned, started, I believe, in 1996. So Nigeria was an early adopter of the idea. But when you think about government ownership of special economic zones, whatever name they're called by, we've got to look at the fact that 
one of the drivers of the success of these things is the quality of infrastructure, the ease of doing business, and the cost of doing business. So it's supposed to be a magnet for investments by offering world-class infrastructure that makes it easy to do business and lowers the cost of doing business. What that means is that government needs to make significant amounts of investment in the hard and soft infrastructure, both inside and outside the fence. Outside the fence in terms of the connecting infrastructure, roads, rail, air, sea or water transportation, water, power, these days, ICT, and so forth. You need to make sure that there is also infrastructure within the fence. You need to make sure that in addition to all the hard infrastructure, there is also the soft infrastructure in terms of the regulatory framework, in terms of the supply of skilled labor, both operational and managerial. So there's a huge amount of investment that needs to be made in hard and soft infrastructure, both inside and outside the fence of these SEZs. And that requires government to come up with substantial amounts of money. Now, when you think about all of the competing demands on the Treasury for education, for healthcare, for public infrastructure, for the, you know, the justice system, for the police, for the armed forces, the court system, we would struggle to be able to come up with the amount of investment required to make these projects work, at least to the standards that are required and to the levels that we see when we go around the world. That is something that we cannot run away from. And, you know, government hasn't been very successful in being able to attract private investment into collaborations with the public sector in that space. The best examples that you will see in Nigeria of special economic zones are private ones. The Oné Free Trade Zone in the Port Harcourt area is a great example. That's an Intel's project. The Nador project in, in Lagos is another example. Niger Dock is another example. Even though Niger Dock, you know, the basic infrastructure there was invested in by government in the late 70s and early 80s, and it went through a process of privatization. But the real issue is that government would struggle to come up with the amounts of capital investment required, and it's patient money that's required to stay there over, you know, 15, 20 year time frames. So I think until we figure out a sustainable way in which to attract private investment in collaboration with government, because there is a very important role that government will play as an enabler, as a regulator, as a facilitator of the operation of these special zones. Until we find that solution, I think we'll continue to struggle. That's interesting. And I'm just going to keep them coming. So another call, resource cost, does it really matter? Is it as deterministic as some analysts would have us believe? Well, just look at Scandinavia. Look at the North Europeans who have oil and what they've done with, with oil. It doesn't have to be a curse. It's the resource cost is potentially a curse when you allow it to be. It's, it's almost like saying that you have a genetic predisposition to diabetes or hypertension. Now, you can beat that by subjecting yourself to the discipline of a certain lifestyle. 
or at least you can delay its onset or mitigate its results. So the resource curse is not the death sentence that some of the influential thinkers in political economy and economic history have made it out to be. There are countries that have beaten it. That proves that it's beatable. Yeah. So corruption, how much weight would you ascribe to that? Some people will argue, well, it doesn't matter. Some will say, oh, it is everything that is wrong with us. What's your reaction to that? Corruption is huge. Corruption is a huge problem. Corruption reduces the amount of money that is available for the important things that we need to do. Corruption increases the cost of doing business. Corruption compromises our institutions. You know, so corruption is like cancer, right? But side by side with corruption is just the frightening level of competence that you see when you go into the public space. There are some amazing people in uh, public services, and you know, there are parts of it that work much better than others. And this is not a blanket condemnation, but certainly we do need to strengthen our institutions. We need to strengthen the capabilities of the civil service to support the development and implementation of policy, to support government, and to ensure that we achieve the objectives of government. That capacity is almost as important as the cleanliness that we need as well. We need both character and competence. What about ideology in our politics? Do we need more or less? I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of ideology. I think we need to be pragmatic. I think many of those ideological arguments are good for the ivory tower. They're good for the think tanks. They're good for the luxury of being outside the cold face of making decisions in government. We just have to be pragmatic and put the national interest and the interest of the people first. When you want to develop a country as big and diverse and complicated as Nigeria, and you want to develop it in a hurry, you have to put pragmatism before ideology. But don't you think that ideology can be useful in terms of competition for dominant ideas? For example, almost, at least in my own, again, reading of the situation, almost every regime in Nigeria since 1999, regardless of political party or persuasion, do protectionism and some form of mixed or closed economy model. So some will argue that if we have ideology enough in our politics, there will be competition for some of those ideas and we would actually see better pragmatic policies. I'm not sure the issue is one of ideology. I think the issue is okay. about, about the choices that we've made. So the big choices we've made in the political economy are choices that have really not been in our best long-term interests as a people, right? Mm. So if we're talking about ideology, you know, I think the debates around capitalism and communism have been won and lost. I think the debates are really around doing what works. And if you look Mm. at the economic history of the 20th century in particular, there are some ideas out there that have been proven to work. For countries Mm -hmm. that are in a hurry to develop, there are some things that you do, right? You've got to go for aggressive, inclusive growth. 
you've got to go for job-rich growth. So you select the policies that help you to do that. And the question really is, is that what we have done? You have to go for significant investment in hard infrastructure. You have to go for significant investment in education. Have we done that? And have we done that in a way that is in our best national interest? So I think those are really the issues we should be talking about rather than ideology. I think it's really about the quality of the choices that we've made rather than the ideologies that we have followed. What is Nigeria's ideology? We don't have one. We don't have a national ideology. Interesting. I mean, we had our national development plans of the 70s that talked about government controlling the commanding heights of the economy. And then we went through a process of privatization after the structural adjustment process reforms of the 80s and the 90s. And the reality is that everywhere you go, China is a communist country, but China practices state capitalism. The Chinese state has elevated capitalism to an art form. A few years ago, I was sitting in a seminar at Harvard University, and the director of the China Center was saying that Western countries are taking delegations to China to learn from Chinese government officials how to court foreign investment and how to form strong public-private partnerships with private investors. Countries in the West, after the last big economic crisis, nationalized banks, gave bailouts to, to car companies, gave bailouts to all sorts of companies. We're going through the COVID pandemic now, and, and countries that can afford to give bailouts are giving bailouts to countries. So there is a role that government plays. There is a role that markets play. And what we need to do is really to find what works for us and do it, as opposed to have this, um, as far as I'm concerned, fairly sterile arguments about ideology. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a lot think about. One final question, which is a bit of a tradition on the show. What's the one big idea you would like to see spread all over Nigeria, both publicly, privately? What's one idea you're passionate about and you like to see spread? Hmm. There's um, a few of them in my mind, so I really don't know who wins the competition for first place among those big ideas, but Certainly one is that the role of government is to be an enabler of the success of its people, its businesses, and its corporations. Government needs to be an enabler rather than a gatekeeper or a gamekeeper or someone that's shutting the gates against the people. Government should be opening doors and playing a facilitating and enabling role and helping everyone to actualize their potential. And we need to go back to our colonial history and, and just fix that. It's a big mindset thing, but it needs to distill down into the values and ethos and the way that government works in Nigeria. The colonial civil service was designed to exploit the resources of the country and suppress the citizens for the benefit of the crown. We have replaced the colonial civil servants, but we really haven't taken that mindset out of government. And, and that's a big thing that we need to do as a country. Another 
thing that I would like to see us just understand is that technology has given us two pathways to rapid development. It used to be from the economic history of Japan, the Asian Tigers, China, the more recent countries that are industrializing, that industrialization was a pathway to growth, starting from the Industrial Revolution, what happened in Western Europe, what happened in America, what has happened across the world. Industrialization is a pathway to growth, and it creates jobs in their millions and raise people out of poverty, and you can do that very quickly. China has done the economic miracle of taking most of its people out of poverty in one generation, and that was largely through, you know, just pursuing manufacturing investment. But now we can pursue new economy investment in services in addition to old economy investment in manufacturing. So we have two pathways to growth, and we need to exploit them quickly because we have a few hundred million young people that we need to put to work. We have an existential crisis that is brewing. It's already upon us as a country, and we're not really treating it as the national emergency that it is. So all of the unrest that we see, all the difficulty that we see, all the killings, all of the social vices that we see are really not happening by accident. We need to create opportunity by the hundreds of millions. Mm. We have a crisis, but we are continuing with business as usual. I do hope people listen. Thank you very much, Femi Edwin. It's been fantastic talking to you. Thanks very much, Toby. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You can subscribe to the podcast on our website, ideasontrapped.com. Again, ideasontrapped.com. Thank you. Until next time.